Good morning, and especially good morning to you mothers. Happy Mother's Day. As I reflect on days like this about the great influencers in my life, I just, oh, the key women in my life that have been such models of faith and poured so much into me, I'm so thankful for. I think we all can just reflect on the influence of godly, powerful women in our lives that we're so grateful for you. As I was studying this final passage in John's gospel, I quickly realized earlier in the week, actually last week, and then when I pushed some of it to this week, I realized we're going to talk on Mother's Day about discipline and suffering. I thought, wow, that's, that's not like the greatest matchup, you know? And then I started thinking, wait a minute, moms know a lot, a lot about discipline and suffering and I haven't even begun to talk about your relationship with your kids. That's a, that's, a, that's a dad's joke. That's a husband's joke right there. But we are in the final sermon in John's gospel. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 21. We're going to look at verses 15 through 25. This is it. And we've decided to celebrate uh, the conclusion of John's gospel. After looking at it for four years, we're giving all of the women chocolate. We're doing that anyways, so there you go. And so uh, I, I've also been reflecting on the fact that this gospel, John's gospel, these 21 chapters, these 64 sermons, it's been so, so rich to dwell on the ministry of Jesus, His love for us, His mercy to us, His grace in the gospel, and all that He accomplished out of that deep love is, is just staggering. Last week, we looked at some of these same verses we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' interaction with Peter, but, but we looked last week at, at the task that Jesus was calling Peter to, which is, feed my sheep, Peter. And we looked at what faithful shepherding is. This week, we want to conclude things by zeroing in on the relationship of Jesus with Peter. It's about the relationship. And so we want to dwell on the fact that that, that Jesus uh, had, had this disciple named Peter who failed him miserably, who was a sinner, who screwed up badly. He denied Jesus three times. And if you've ever screwed up in your life, you, you might really love what you see here in this interaction of Jesus with Peter. You see, I think we do well to learn from how Jesus interacts with Peter Peter's a guy who swore allegiance to Jesus and days later swore he didn't know Jesus. Peter is a picture of all of us because he's duplicitous. In other words, he simultaneously betrays Jesus and loves Jesus. And that's the story of every Christian every day. We simultaneously love him and we betray him. And so... I think it's critically important that we see not only what Peter does, but more importantly, what Jesus does with Peter. We need to see it. What do we do with our sin? But even more importantly, what does Jesus do when we sin? So let's read the text. Verse 15, chapter 21, says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, John, the gospel writer, makes clear what he's talking about here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. This was a rumor that got out of hand. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Three points this morning. Every good sermon has one. Here's the three. (laughs) Mercy and discipline. Second, mercy in suffering. And thirdly, mercy in simplicity. Let's look at the first. Mercy in discipline. Now, even more apparent than at first glance, Jesus is disciplining Peter in this scenario. And, and I'm going to show you four ways in, in, the, in the few verses that we've read here, four ways in which Jesus is disciplining Peter. And the question, as I go through those, the question I want you to have at the forefront of your mind is, is Jesus just being mean or punitive or vindictive? Or is what Jesus is doing here, is it loving? I want that, you to interact with that. We'll interact with that as we go. Here's the first way in which Jesus is mercifully disciplining Peter. It's public discipline. It says, when they had finished breakfast. That's where we pick up the text. So we need to back up a little bit. At the beginning of John 21, we, there's a new scene it's set in, in Galilee where Peter and a number of the other disciples are fishing, and Jesus shows up. Verse 12, it tells us that Jesus said to them, Peter and the other disciples that have been fishing, come have breakfast. And then it appears that when breakfast is concluded with this number of disciples around, Jesus begins to talk to Peter in front of the others. Now, this isn't merely discipline that Jesus is doing. This is public discipline. I, uh, I have two little boys, and sometimes I need to take them aside and discipline them. It's not okay for you to punch your brother in the face. Please don't do that anymore. You need to stop. There will be consequences if you don't. 
When they have friends over and I need to discipline them, their reaction is often very different, right? And I kind of call out one of my sons in front of his buddies, and he kind of just, they straighten up quick, and they listen, and they're a little bit embarrassed, and they're trying to, like, get me to stop, right? There's a very different reaction. So, so is that what Jesus is doing here? Like, all these other disciples are around. Is Jesus just having a go at Peter here in front of the others? Make him feel real bad about himself. Now, Matthew chapter 18 is a help to churches and to Christians how we are to deal with issues we have between each other. And we're told that a brother or a sister is supposed to go to the person they have an issue with where there's a wrong, there's some wrongdoing going on and try and settle it, the one with the other. Go to your brother. Go and try and sort that out. And if they will not listen, then bring a couple more with you, and then if, if they will not listen, then, then the, the church in some capacity needs to get more involved. And so what's happening there is really the, the, the idea to restore a person where there is a difficulty going on in a relationship, and yet the goal is always to keep it as small as possible. Like if the one person can go to the other and it can get sorted out, that's ideal. That's what Matthew 18 is telling us. We want to keep it small. There's no reason to tell everybody about something that could have just been sorted out if the one person went to the other. So what's Jesus doing here then by sitting around a breakfast fire? They're eating fish. Breakfast is winding down, and Jesus says to Peter, Hey, do you love me? In front of the others. Is that just punitive? Here's the thing. Peter denied Jesus publicly. Everybody knew it. In front of people that he didn't know who were questioning him, Jesus, Peter denies Jesus, and the disciples knew it. It's actually a grace what Jesus is doing here. See, for, for, for Jesus to publicly discipline, but with the motivation to restore him, it's gracious because all of these disciples otherwise would be wondering what might have happened privately was that made right? Did, 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 did Peter correct that? Is that? Has that been sorted out? Should he even be here preaching and doing this? Jesus in his grace in front of the others is saying, Peter, I'm going to restore you. It's gracious. Second, Jesus names the sin. Now, uh, uh, let me explain what I mean. He says, Simon, Simon, son of John, Simon Johnson. That's, that's, Peter's name. Now, if we were to look in a, a story Bible and see all of the disciples on a boat, and there's one disciple that's bigger than all the other disciples, his beard is longer, he looks a little bit older, we'd point at that, that disciple and say, that's Peter, right? We just know him as Peter. But his name was Simon, son of John. And in John chapter 1, Jesus calls Peter and says to him, Simon, son of John, you shall now be called Peter. And what's so amazing about that is that Simon, son of John, it means little pebble. That's not a great name. You know, like Peter, Peter's kind of the alpha male of the disciples too. So that his name is little pebble is like, oh, that's tough for him, right? And then G Peter starts following Jesus. Peter, by the way, means rock. So Jesus says, hey, little pebble, your name's rock now. And, and, and Rock starts following Jesus and watching as Jesus makes more disciples, calls more disciples, and he's noticing something. He doesn't go up to another guy and say, hey, your name's Leaf. Now you're going to be Tree. He doesn't do that. He just does that with Peter, which is quite amazing. And so Peter, what are the, what are the two sins that are really clear about Peter that we see in the Gospels, by the way? 
The one is the three denials. What's the other thing about Peter that we often see? What's his thing? He's really proud. Jesus, in front of these other disciples, I mean, he he renamed him Peter in John 1. And the rest of the Gospels, he's like Peter or Simon Peter, but he's calling him Peter all the time. Here, what does he do? Little pebble. Remember when I renamed you Rock? Remember what I did in your life? When I found you, you were little pebble. I named you Rock. Hey, little pebble, do you love me? And he addresses Peter's two biggest sins right there in one word, Simon. Pride. And, of course, those denials. Third, asking pointed questions. Do you love me more than these? This is the first of three times that Jesus will ask Peter, do you love me? But the first one's a little different because he says, do you love me more than these? So put your biblical interpretation hats on now. Very very studious hats, these biblical interpretation hats. Put those on. There's three kind of dominant interpretations of what are the these? What the these are in, do you love me more than these? Now, here's the context. Peter has, has gone back up to Galilee. He's fishing, and he literally just got off the boat. The fishing boat is there. He's pulled in the fish. The net is there, and they've just finished a breakfast of fish. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? The boat, the nets, the fish. His livelihood, his profession Do you love me more than that? That that could well be what he's saying. The second popular interpretation is, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? He's sitting around a fire with these other disciples. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these friends of yours, these brothers? Do you love me more than you love them? Now, I want to stop here after these two interpretations and say these are very much Christian applications. When you give your life to Jesus and follow him, your true vocation is follower of Jesus and everything else falls in line. You have a profession, you give yourself to work, you make an income, sure, but your vocation is follower of Jesus. Nothing is superior to that. And what do you do when you have a job? You make money and you have stuff. And and so Jesus in that could be saying, you are to love me more than all of those things. That makes sense. Not only that, when you give your life to Jesus and follow Jesus, it's not just adding another relationship among all your other relationships. It reorients every relationship, and they're all subservient to your relationship with Jesus. So do you love me more than these guys? Do you love me more than you love your buddies here? That, that, that makes sense, right? Like, we are to, Jesus is to be our supreme affection, and everything else falls into place. We should love Jesus most. But I actually think this third interpretation I'll I'll share with you here is the one that fits the context best. It's Jesus saying, do you love me more than these disciples love you? Now remember, we're in the context of discipline here, and I think this is what Jesus is getting at. It's another form of discipline to Peter. Do you love me, Peter, more than all the rest of the other disciples love me? 
And I, I think this would have made Peter think back to what he said just before Jesus died, just before he was betrayed. Matthew 26, 30 says, And when they had sung a hymn, I just love the idea of Jesus and these young men singing a hymn together. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. What Jesus is saying just before the cross is he is saying that all of his disciples are going to fall away. They're all going to run. And not only are they going to do that, it's within the will of God. It's going to fulfill scripture that they do. That's what Jesus is telling them here. And what does Peter do? Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So here now, Jesus, post-resurrection, sitting around the fire with the other disciples, and Jesus said, you'll all fall away. And Peter had thrown all of his buddies under the bus. They all will, not me. And now Jesus is sitting at the fire and saying, do you love me more than they love me? And Peter's meant Imagine how uncomfortable he is at that moment. Imagine how painful this discipline is now. Little pebble, do you love me more than all these other guys love me? Do you love me most? Lastly, the fourth way in which we see his mercy and discipline is dealing with the sin and dealing with it thoroughly. We see in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? See, once Jesus begins to say it a third time, they all get it. I mean, it tells us that in the text. When Jesus begins to ask the question a third time, Peter's grieved. Why? Because he's asking him a third time. He's like, oh, Jesus, you have to do this. I, I know already. Can we just move on from this, right? And Jesus is just sitting in it. no. We will address this completely, and then we will move on. But we will address this. We need to hear that about our sin, by the way. Can't we just move on from it, pretend it didn't happen, just sweep it away and carry on, all is well? A third time, Jesus leans in. You know what I'm doing here, Peter. I want to make this clear. Do you love me? And Peter is grieved. On Easter Sunday, I told the story about uh, our dog being, our family dog being stolen and my wife putting on like a superhero scenario and getting our dog back. It was awesome. Well, I'm a bit of a hero myself, actually. Um, found out a couple weeks ago, I was, I was leaf blowing our uh, front porch and a raccoon went shooting out from under, it, like I guess the leaf blower freaked her out and I say her because this is an important part. Uh, because she went shooting out, I realized that we had a, a raccoon living under our porch. And then we quickly found out through the little squeaks that there were babies under our porch as well. And so I had a plan. Actually, we didn't know at first that the babies were there. And so I, I got her out of there. And then with my best crafty skills, which are extremely limited, I, I built what I built, what I thought would keep her out of our front porch. 
The next day, obviously, she very easily seems to have gotten past that and gotten back in. And then we realized that there were babies in there. And so then um, I removed a board of our front porch, which was a task for me. Uh, and then uh, I scared the mom away. Uh, then I was going to get the babies, and we were just going to put them in the forest and hope for the best. And as I picked one up, I was like, and, and all my whole family were on the other side of the window watching um, I was obviously wearing long clothing and gloves and um, praying for that God would take me quickly. And, uh, <laughs> and they're all on the other side of the window. Just like, and then we saw this little baby raccoon, and it, truly, it really was adorable. And, I, and, I, and we all collectively were like, we cannot put these out in the forest. They will just be food for something. And so we put it back in. And then we came up with a plan, a uh, farmer in our church helped me out, catch and release kind of trap, borrowed that from the farm, and uh, I got all the babies out, put them in the trap, put the trap in the garden. So this is our third attempt here. And then the raccoon comes along to get the babies and gets trapped in there. I owe my neighbor for the rest of my life because I was able to swindle him into coming with me because I didn't want to have to like open this thing with a crazy raccoon inside trying to defend her, her little... Uh, Kittens, and uh, and so my my neighbor had a hockey stick because it's a it's a longer weapon. We decided in case she comes for me, and uh, and he helped me. We 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 released her into nature and with her babies, and uh, and and so I'm a hero. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that was quite the thing. But there was just this kind of progression every time, trying to sort this out, uh, like a growing, like, okay, this needs to be dealt with. And finally, right, it's to the point where, okay, we're going to deal with this completely. It will be done, and we will move on. I mean, Jesus is painstakingly just readdressing it, coming back to it. He's not prolonging it, but he's being thorough in dealing with the sin of Peter. Now, is this... All of these ways in which he's disciplining Peter, is it vindictive? No, it's not. It's actually gracious of him. And because at every turn, as he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. He says, okay, feed my sheep. In other words, okay, now let's go. Now let's move on. Okay, now we can move. Jesus isn't going to hang there forever. He's going to address it completely. And now he's going to say, okay, now let's go. And we need to hear that because a lot of us in the church have these sins in our lives and we, we, don't, we don't address them thoroughly. We don't allow Jesus to, to, in the discipline in our lives to address them thoroughly. And we kind of just live in them and live in the guilt and don't know what to do with it. And then we just don't actually move on. We're crippled by it and feel like hypocrites if we do anything for the faith. And Jesus wants to show us he can address the sins in our lives and he can then commission us. Hebrews 12 verse 5 is really helpful in what it looks like in terms of the discipline of the Lord. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a a short time, that's fathers, as it seemed best to them, but He, that's the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, like for Peter, rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So why does God discipline us? to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we might share in His holiness. What an amazing thing. That's why He disciplines us. It's a good end. It's towards holiness, towards Christ like this. And who is it that God disciplines? It's those He loves. I've gone through some seasons of discipline in my life, and I've clung to verses like this. And as I've gone through difficult times of discipline in my life, I thought to myself, wow, God, you must really, really love me because this discipline is hard, hard. Now, this is the, this is the normal Christian life. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and as we, we're tempted to sin and we fall into sin, the Holy Spirit is convicting us, don't do that, don't fall into that, don't, don't go there again, and all that kind of stuff. And when we ignore that and carry on, ah, whatever, right? And we give in and we just chase those things, then what often happens is if we just ignore the Holy Spirit and give in to these sins is the discipline of the Lord comes into our lives. We get found out. It kind of comes to the surface. It, it works itself out in ways that, that just absolutely must be addressed. That's the discipline of the Lord. He gives us the Spirit to convict our hearts, and when we ignore the Spirit out of love for us, He disciplines us. See, while discipline is uncomfortable and even grieves us, it grows and shapes us. See, Jesus is disciplining Peter in order to bring Peter through his sin and on to restoration and commission. What Jesus has done is loving. Peter doesn't need to wonder if Jesus loves him. Peter doesn't need to wonder what he's supposed to do with his life. Peter doesn't need to wake up every morning to hear the rooster crowing and feel guilty. No. Discipline is unpleasant, but oh, is it merciful. Secondly, mercy and suffering. Jesus tells Peter through what appears to be a Roman euphemism for crucifixion, what kind of death he will die. You ever play any variation of a game where ultimately the question gets asked at some point, like, if you could know when and how you were going to die, would you want to? And whenever I'd get asked that question in a game like that, I'd be like, no, no, I don't. I don't want to know how. I don't want to know when. I think that would really mess me up. Like, if I were to find out, you're going to die in a plane crash. Well, you know what I would do? I would avoid planes right? I'm just going to stay away from planes. It's like, hey, we're going to Europe. I'm like, I'll drive, right? <laughs> see, I'll see you there in seven weeks. I'm taking a boat, right? Like, I'm just going to stay away from the plane. And, and Peter's finding out here, following me is going to cost you your life. It's not going to be pretty. And God bless him. Like, Jesus has brought Peter through difficult things. And Peter's going to run with it. Peter's not going to avoid planes. He's going to hop on the plane. He's going to go. Let's see the mercy of Jesus in suffering. See, suffering is pain, distress, and hardship. Who wants that? But just because we don't want it doesn't mean it's meaningless. 
I'm going to tell you three myths about suffering quickly. Um, I was helped by uh, the writing of Matt Carter and Josh Redberg on this. Here's the first myth about suffering. It's this. Suffering is easy for mature believers. You're scoffing at that as if that's, right? There you go. You just proved my point. It never gets easy. In fact, later in Peter's ministry, he's going to write to suffering Christians, those who have given their lives to Christ at great cost, and he's going to refer to coming sufferings as fiery trials. Like, that's not the language of, it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit of a prick, there will be some discomfort. No, it's going to be a fiery trial. See, older saints still get tears in their eyes. Older saints still hurt, still ask why, and still must trust Jesus in the dark. Peter's going to suffer. It's not going to be easy. Christians suffer. It doesn't mean it'll get easy. But there is a purpose for it. The second myth is the amount we suffer is based on what we deserve. I love this. What's Peter's first response when Jesus is like, you're going to die a not pretty death that's going to glorify me. And the very first thing that Peter thinks is, what about that guy? What about him? <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to suffer. Is he going to suffer too? He's, suffer, he's going to suffer too, right? Like, don't we do that? We all do that. You look at someone who appears not to be suffering and thinking, what about them? What are you doing, God? And our, our instinct in all of this is to think we get what we deserve as well, right? And so getting what we deserve, that we should suffer a bit because we're not perfect, but we shouldn't suffer much because we're pretty good. And then when we do suffer more, we, we question the goodness of God. We definitely think we shouldn't suffer more than that guy, right? What about him? But here's the reality. The gospel is good news precisely because it's a free gift of grace to those who don't deserve it. Look, maybe you're going through the ringer right now while others seem to have little to no suffering. It's not, it's not an issue of what you've done to deserve it. It depends on the sovereign and gracious plan of God. God had a purpose for John's life. God had a purpose for Peter's life. Which leads to the final myth. Suffering is outside of God's control. Here's the logic about that. Suffering is the result of sin. God doesn't sin. Therefore, suffering is outside of God's control. I remember before we had our boys, uh, Emily suffered a miscarriage. And people were really comforting um, that we knew well in that time. One woman, well-meaning, uh, told Emily at one point, I think to comfort her, said, don't blame God. He had nothing to do with this. And I get what she, she meant by that, right? God is good and this is bad. Therefore, this isn't from God. Don't blame him. Don't be discouraged. Like, don't, don't pin this on God. He had nothing to do with this. But it actually had the opposite effect of comfort. See, what's comforting is actually that God has a purpose even in these hard and difficult things, even when we can't fathom what they could possibly be, to be able to trust that God in His infinite wisdom has a purpose for it nonetheless. See, the logic that suffering is outside of God's control isn't consistent with Scripture. When Peter asks what will happen to John, Jesus replies, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This means he had will for John, he had will for Peter. 
is a will for you, and your suffering is not meaningless. It's not random, and while we do not always understand why we suffer, we can be confident that God has a purpose for it. Jesus brought Peter, a crooked man, a sinful man, through discipline and out the other side. Jesus would bring Peter through suffering and out the other side. Like we pick up the story only a little while later and there's this small band of Christians, the earliest church, and the Holy Spirit descends and Peter in great boldness along with the church, they go out into the street and there's a crowd there because there's been a Jewish festival in town and Peter boldly preaches the gospel faithfully and it says that three thousand people came to Christ. What would the old Peter have done? I mean, he would have walked home after preaching that sermon and been like, 3,000 people, what's up? (laughs) Rock. (laughs) Nailed it. But not the Peter who experienced two charcoal fires. One that he denied Jesus three times over. And one where Jesus restored him over. I bet when Peter walked home after preaching that sermon, those charcoal fires were what were on his mind. Not a swagger in his step. Peter's death was not recorded in the Bible, but according to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he saw himself as unworthy to die in the same way as Jesus. And as he walked to his own death, carrying the cross beam of his own cross, as was the practice of Roman execution, And they offered him the opportunity to recant and have his life spared. I'm sure he remembered the two charcoal fires. Opportunity to just deny Jesus was afforded to him again. But Jesus had brought him through discipline so that he could come through the other side. Because of the unpleasant, necessary mercies of Jesus, because of what they had accomplished in in his purposes for them, decades prior, Peter could remain faithful to Jesus. Oh, how he uses these prickly things in our lives. Just as a word of encouragement as we close, mercy in simplicity. We've spent weeks and weeks and weeks in John's gospel. Sermon after sermon after sermon, a few verses at a time, a few verses at a time, a new theme, new rich theology, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and, and something about the Christian faith is that the, the, more, the more you discover, the less you know, right? In terms of doctrines and, and, and just following Jesus, it's an infinite pool and we never reach the bottom of it all. And yet at the same time, there's a beautiful simplicity in, in, in Jesus, what he says to Peter. Peter isn't supposed to be able to fathom all of this right now. So Jesus just says, follow me. And I want you to hear that as we conclude John's gospel, just the simplicity of it all. Here's what what John wants you to do. He wants you to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. Psalm 119 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, not a floodlight. Can't see everything ahead of us. A little lamp flickers and it shows us enough light for our next step. And that's enough. That's enough for following Jesus. You may be experiencing the mercy of discipline in your life right now. Jesus is saying, follow me, and we'll graciously shine enough light down the path so you can take the next step. You may be experiencing the mercy of suffering in your life right now. Jesus is saying, follow me, 
Sometimes he will lead us to a mountaintop, and at other times he will lead us through dark valleys. Follow me. Have you ever heard anything so beautiful, simple, profound, and difficult in your entire life? John wrote this gospel so that we would believe in and follow Jesus. And he called Peter to awesome and costly things and supplied his every need along the way. And the same is true for you. Follow Jesus and he will send you the Spirit. Follow Jesus and he will help you fish for souls. Follow Jesus and he will help you shepherd the sheep. Follow Jesus and he will help your life bear fruit. Follow Jesus and he will send you to the ends of the earth. Follow Jesus and you will see him in glory. May we be like Peter and follow Jesus one step at a time. Let me just read these last two verses and then we're done. This is the disciple, John, he's revealed himself as the writer. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If all the deeds of Jesus that happened during his earthly ministry If all the deeds of Jesus, his works among us, we could tell story after story to encourage each other. If all the deeds of Jesus were described, the world would be far too small and inadequate a library. The Gospel of John. Let's pray together. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. We praise you for many things that we consider blessings. Our mothers on days like today. We often don't praise you for the blessings that we we never recognize as such, the ways that you've lovingly, mercifully disciplined us so you can draw us back, draw us to faithfulness, prepare us for what lies ahead, and you do it through suffering as well. Lord, the burdens of us as a church, as the individuals in it are many, and they're heavy, but they are not meaningless. Thank you that you have mercy in suffering, mercy in discipline, and thank you when it all seems too much that you can call us to simplicity. These two simple words that you say, follow me. May we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.